0: in this office last in some ways it seems like I never left but no no, that's not right it well for at least a few days I was away far away in the hands of men with no faces and no names they broke me down broke my story down telling me how it hadn't happened the way I claimed at least I think that's what they did Between injections. Memories fade fast enough without chemical help, and if I don't tell the story now, I don't think I ever will. What was that date?
1: That was the shaky and kind of unsure voice of reporter Carl Kolchak as he was telling us about the case of Mr. Ring, that episode aired on January 10th, 1975, first episode of 1975, directed by Gene Levitt and written by our old friends L4 Neal and John Huff. And you won't be hearing anything from them this episode or John Huff this episode, but I'll tell you a couple of little stories as we go along the way. With me, as always, is my intrepid co-host, Mr. Chris Deschew.
2: I was really disappointed, Mike, because you told me that you were going to introduce this episode as Mr. R-I-N-G, but I take it one further. It's Mr. R.I.N.G. Uh, just to really get under the skin of some folks. Uh, I'm here. Let's talk about a uh, robot. What a robot. My goodness. What a robot. What a robomatic internalized nerve ganglia. This is the first time I've ever seen Carl
1: shaken when he's doing his intro and outro, which was kind of a nice thing.
2: It's also kind of weird because in terms of the level of threat to him, this episode is pretty low compared to some of the other ones, which I find interesting that he is so shaken by this versus, say, the original Night Stalker movie where he has to murder a vampire. And yet this is, this has shaken him to his core to the point where he's questioning reality. It's, it's all, it's all a bit bizarre. Well, it's not Mr.
1: Ring that caused him to question reality. It's the effects of the military questioning that we don't see that has really screwed him up.
2: Yeah. The, uh, the military are the big baddies of this episode. And I don't feel like they went far enough I feel like they kind of pulled back a little bit from that. I really wish that they had like, gone full military, just big, bad villains in this episode, and they kind of bait you into thinking it's Mr. Ring, and then it ends up not being Mr. Ring, and you find that out kind of much later in the episode.
1: Yeah, and there's actually a real conspiracy going on here. That goes all the way up from the military to the head of the INS. And they're basically like, Hey, Tony, you got to kill this story. And then it doesn't necessarily, the story is dead, obviously, like it always is. But Carl's continues to investigate this. And I like how he's kind of pulling out the, well, Tony, it's, uh, the government budget really, you know, they're, they're spending our money without us knowing. And he, Keep saying that, like, my tax dollars pay for this thing, and I really want to know what's going on here.
2: Yeah, I I really – I found that interesting that that was kind of the driving – that that's kind of the driving force here is the the government is spending our money, Tony, and we need to do something about it. I found that kind of so – the fact that they're making a point of that is so bizarre, but in a kind of forward-thinking way, it's very ahead of its time. Because, I mean, that's something we talk about now with the government. The government's spending our money on things we maybe wouldn't approve of them spending our, their money, our money on. That chair that the uh, HUD secretary
1: bought for, what, $35,000 or whatever?
2: Well, you're not getting a flavor of ice cream you want
0: on your paella mode. That's all I know. Uh, Tony, do you remember when you were a kid in grammar school about 110th in New Amsterdam? And Andy used to draw the tax dollar as a great big pie, with one slice out went for defense, and another slice went for social programs, and uh, yes. another slice went for uh, government Yes, yes. yes, yes. Well, what they didn't tell you then was that your tax dollar wasn't buying just pie, it was buying pie a la mode. No, oh, that's right. No, no. There is a mysterious scoop of something on your tax dollar pie, and that something is Project Ring. Uh-huh. Now, now, now how, how would you feel if at Manny's you ordered a pie a la mode, but they wouldn't tell you what flavor ice cream you're going to get? Huh? I mean, your apple pie might arrive with some horrible chocolate chip or butter brickle or uh, Rocky Road. I don't like Rocky Road. Now, I know you don't like Rocky Road. Now, you wouldn't let Manny push you around like that, now would you? No. Of course not. So why should you let your government do it?
1: The narration starts, I took special note of this. The narration, we, we are set at April 2nd on a Sunday. That actually means a lot to me because I was born on Sunday, April 2nd. So my ears just perked up immediately. I was born in 1972. There was no april 2nd on a sunday in 1974 or 1975 the next april 2nd that ended up on a sunday would have been 1978 so they kind of screwed up on the date a little bit here but it it brought little like warming feeling to my uh my chest here when i heard that
2: are you saying that
1: you might be mr ring no i'm not mr ring i did not wake from the slab on sunday april 2nd and kill my creator
2: well, you might have woken
1: from the slab, but you definitely didn't kill your creator. No, my mom is still alive. Though my father,
2: not necessarily so. So maybe I am Mr. Ring. What did you think of the design of the robot? I thought it was very interesting for kind of what they were given, if that makes sense. It's hokey, but I mean, it's not It's not any hokeyer than anything else we've seen. Frankly, it's a little, in some respects, it's a little less hokey. The way that the
1: face sticks out in order to cover up the stuntman's face who played that i realized just before we started to record that the person that played mr ring is craig r baxley who was a stuntman for tons of years and then he actually became a director in his own right directing such classics as stone cold which brought to the fore brian bosworth that movie is amazing hell yes And he also directed Action Jackson, which is another classic. I, I'm i not being sarcastic when I say that, because I freaking love that movie. And, I mean, he did stunts on tons of amazing films. So he did a bunch of stunts on The Night Stalker that went uncredited, apparently. But here he was as Mr. Ring, and having to wear yeah that big, crazy thing over his head so that Mr. Ring's face could kind of light up. It kind of reminded me of... I can't remember the name of the character from the Bionic Man, but I remember having an action figure that was very similar where you'd peel off his face and it would be all these circuits and stuff underneath.
2: Is that the six-million-dollar man? No! It's Maskatron,
0: the robot! Here's Steve Austin! At last, we meet! Look out, Steve! Maskatron will conquer you! Take that, Maskatron, and that! Ask-a-tron, new from Kenner. Six million dollar man, sold separately.
2: It reminds me a lot of the movie Westworld. It's like Westworld on a cheaper budget. It's kind of what, like, I mean, you know, in Westworld they never really show a robot without the face, like walking around. They just show them like on a table and they're doing stuff, so it's not clearly not an actor. And this, they've got like the face exposed. All the time until he has the mask on. So it's a, little, it's a little different. So they kind of... I don't know. I felt like the way that they did it... They set themselves up for this to be harder. Because they had him walking around without his face on. And they could have maybe revealed that he was... Like a robot underneath or something. And that maybe would have saved them... Time and effort to... Work around the fact that this is an episode about a robot. Versus it clearly being someone wearing a mask that protrudes so that you can you can see the the underneath of the robot ahead of time
1: yeah had he even been wearing that kind of weird face that he ends up wearing as the episode goes on cuz he's got like his quote unquote natural face then he's got the blue mask that he puts on and then it's the Mask with the undertaker embalmer mortician's putty on top of it.
0: Cosmetologist, not undertaker.
1: I, I also found it a little ironic because you know we talked way back when we first started recording uh, episodes about the show that we talked a lot about the Quester tapes, where the one of the themes of the music in the Quester tapes ended up becoming Kolchak's theme, and that whole movie was about. Uh, androids and creating a superhuman android so now we're kind of back into android territory
2: it's an android that again it's kind of a mcguffin in a way because you think that he's this you know you you think that Kolchak's looking for this villain and the robot's the villain and then right at the end it's like but the robot's not the villain it's actually the military i like that again i feel like that's really ahead of its time but it's also unfortunate that it it takes so long in the episode to get there
1: It does take a little while. I mean, even the beginning where we have the whole thing of Ron Updike going to San Francisco. And again, you know, I've talked on this show before about how they code Ron to be gay. And so when it's like he's going back to San Francisco and...
2: I'm going home to my city by the bay.
1: Okay. Yet another thing where it's just like, yes, of course you're from San Francisco, Ron. Of course. Whatever. It's
2: called signaling, Mike. Don't you understand? They're signaling him to be gay. They couldn't outright say he was gay. And I do like that. <laughs>
1: Carl had taken off the day before for basically gone fishing, and gets punished for that by having to write this obit. And that's really what sets us in motion is that he wants to get more information on this obit, even though he wants to drop that as soon as he possibly can because he gets there's a call on the radio after he gets kind of his first little. Clues about what's going on here. And then there's a call on the radio, and he's just like, Oh, hey, I can drop this shit and just go right into my usual crime beat reporting. And that's when we have Mr. Ring, the first interaction between Carl and Ring, or he gets to see this guy in action, this robot in action. And did you notice the movie theater that Mr. Ring runs by? Uh, no. Oh, he runs past a the movie theater, and there's two guys who are putting up like the title on the marquee. It's the same movie that was playing on last month's episode, last week's episode, which was the Rakshasha. There's the uh, uh, Jewish couple comes out of the movies, and they take a shortcut down a uh, narrow alleyway. It's basically the alleyway that Mr. Ring doesn't go down, but one on the other side of the theater.
2: Oh, wow. No, I didn't catch that. Yeah, because it was the
1: same movie. It was called The Fever was over them, and then it was – uh, you could barely see it, but Mr. Ring runs past it. And I was like, oh, The Fever. They must just have the one movie that I like to show in Chicago these days. It's that continuity. Got to keep the continuity up. So I don't think they shot on location is what I'm trying to say.
2: <laughs> you think? <laughs> <laughs> what gave it away? The fact that Chicago looks like a-, a soundstage? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, something like that.
1: I did like Carmichael the cosmologist, the uh, the – mortician guy and just how he keeps correcting Carl whenever he
2: says Undertaker.
0: Well, could you tell me what happened, Mr. Uh, the- Carmichael? Carmichael, yeah. You're the head Undertaker uh, here. Not Undertaker, Cosmetologist.
2: Yeah, he's like, not an Undertaker, a Cosmologist. He's so good. It's like, it's like what? Uh, he's he's doing like a weird thing with his voice and it, it works. It's, it works really well for that role, but man, it's like, it's such a weird kind of It's a weird kind of thing to do. It's kind of like a weird like choice that he makes for like that character. And it kinda it plays into that I don't know, that stereotype of morticians are weirdos. I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but that's kinda what it struck me as.
1: That guy who played him, Robert Easton, was in a ton of stuff. He's got such an interesting look. Like the way that his eyes looked and stuff was really kinda weird. Like he ended up showing up as a judge in Star Trek 6 and stuff and I, he was in another action classic, Red Heat oh, we've covered that movie before on the Culture Cast. it's a good movie so he worked both in front of and behind the camera apparently he would do some some crew work but um, yeah, he had a, a great look to him and I love the way that he's just kind of looking down his nose at uh, Kolchak. It's kind of that snobs versus the slobs thing. And what's with Kolchak never closing his car door? Did you
2: notice that? I did notice that, but I don't know what the deal is with that. I guess if he needs to take off in a hurry. I think it's, yeah, I think it's the whole Kolchak is a harried reporter, and he needs to constantly be able to kind of get where he needs to go. But, I mean, you and I both know the best bit in this entire episode is when he goes to Dr. Dwyer's apartment trying to find her and the cops are there and he tells the cops that he's Major Kolchak and then he says something to the effect of when he sees one of the cops who would recognize him I have to go uh, ROTC parade in the morning gotta go uh, and you can almost see like the, the smoke trails of him leaving and zipping <laughs> out the door I mean that's the thing about this show is the comedy when it works it's really funny but it doesn't work more often than it does For me, this episode
1: hit on every level. Like I actually – everything worked for me on this one. I don't know what it was. I don't know if just having talked so much about bad medicine and knowing L. Ford Neal and John Huff's work that I was expecting this to work and it ended up doing it. But I think think my expectations were actually more high than they should have been just because bad medicine was so good. And I was like, oh, well, here's two – Writers that we've seen before, and we like their first episode, so I wonder how this one's going to be. And it ended up, for me, just
2: working really well. That's the other thing about this episode. So, we're pretty active on the Kolchak Facebook pages, which are fan groups, essentially. And... This episode always comes up. You know that. I know that. We've I've noticed that this episode always comes up as one of the scarier episodes, one of the more impactful episodes with the audience, and I can see why. Because this episode has kind of does something that none of the episodes have done up until this point. They've really given you a sympathetic villain kind of fake out MacGuffin villain. And I think that that's pretty impactful because everything else up to this point has been pretty paint by numbers with a lot of the villains. It's been pretty formulaic. And when they deviate from the formula, you get something exciting. And I would say that it's this episode is pretty exciting because it really does deviate from the formula, a fair amount in some respects. In, so, in other respects, it doesn't. But in respects to the kind of the major conflict, It deviates from kind of what I was expecting going into the episode, and I think that that really works in the episode's favor because, again, when it isn't just kind of doing the Kolchak finds a monster, Kolchak fights the monster, Kolchak may kill the monster, and the monster disappears, this is when the show kind of really hits its stride. Well, and other than –
1: because there's the death of the scientists at the beginning, which – Kind of makes sense that Ring was defending himself because the scientists wanted to shut him down. Other than the death of the mailman, there's no real wanton murder going on. Like, I feel bad for the mailman because he really shouldn't have been murdered, and that postal uniform just doesn't fit Ring anyway. Like, I think the blue jumpsuit that he was in... Was Actually, no, I take it back, because he was naked at the very beginning. Cause, like
2: kinda- yeah, he was like running around in what looked like a, a flesh-toned skin, like one of those like green man from It's Always Sunny suits. Right. So I
1: guess he had to murder that guy to get his postal uniform. Okay. I need
2: your clothes and your uniform. Okay. I think this guy's a couple cans short of a six-pack. They make you feel sympathetic towards the the robot, which, again, I think is good. Yeah. And like you said, there's not a lot of murder and killing and, you know, in a lot of the other episodes we've seen, you know, some of the side characters, the supporting characters get offed pretty, you know, pretty quickly or halfway through the episode. So this is very different. Well, and other than
1: uh, Robert Easton as Bernard Carmichael, the other side characters like Bert Fried, he's okay as Captain Aikens, but he's just, you know, he's he, he's not out there as much. He's more kind of in the shadows, and he'll just kind of show up and be like, why are you talking to this guy? You know, this guy needs to go away, those kind of things. And really, the main people that we deal with through most of this are Mrs. Walker, the scientist's wife, who's played by Julie Adams from Creature from the Black Lagoon, and then Corrine Camacho as Dr. Leslie Dwyer, who was Dr. Walker's um, co-worker, and Those two actresses are terrific, and they kind of are on either side of the spectrum as far as, you know, the one was just like, oh, my God, it was so boring, it was terrible, and then the other one's really into the science of it, and then she ends up kind of becoming Ring's mother. When we talked to Huff a few months ago for the Bad Medicine episode, he said that the last word that Ring says when he gets shot is mama. I did not hear mama.
2: I didn't either. And I'm kind of, you know, there you go. I didn't know that that's what it was going for. It's interesting. I mean, it makes sense, obviously, with who Dr. Dwyer's character was meant to be in the episode.
1: And it is smart that it's kind of, you know, we've seen vampires and werewolves and all these things. And now we have basically it's the Frankenstein story, which is a nice way to do it and to give it that twist with the android so we don't actually have something made out of human pieces that it's something created that is trying to be human trying to learn what it is to be human but instead they give it that nice cybernetic twist and make it into
2: this android self-learning android that feels and yeah i mean i, I think that that i think that that is good because if they had t- tried to do the typical frankenstein myth. I don't think it would have worked very well. No. Well, even, you
1: know, I was talking about how strong the writing was, and even when Vincenzo is telling Carl to knock it off, you know, get off the case kind of thing, he makes this remark about, you know, go back to Charlie McCarthy or something, and it was just like, well, that's really nice, because it's a dummy, and, you know, it has this "Quote unquote human voice," and then we have Mr. Ring, who's also an inanimate object, but also has this human voice. So I was like, It's like little touches to this that really add up to making this something special.
2: There's a lot of stuff in this episode that works really well. Like we get to see Kolchak and Vincenzo not constantly at odds. Yes, which I think also is a really good part of this episode because that's one of my least favorite things in this show is them constantly being at odds with each other because that shows no kind of depth or change to their relationship. And honestly, it was getting kind of old because I would like to see more of Vincenzo and, and Kolchak kind of getting along and kind of Vincenzo starting to come over to Kolchak's side. And you kind of see that in this episode a little bit not a whole lot but it's you know it's baby steps. Well, I was very glad too to
1: see I think I saw at least 3 African American actors in here and it didn't necessarily matter that they were African Americans, they were just people who were in the episode. So you had the librarian, you had the one cop and I think there was another woman who was I think she was actually in the INS office. So it's like, wow, we actually have some people of color in this episode. This is really nice. And it wasn't the zombie episode where people are just portraying uh stereotypes or anything, so it's like, "Oh, okay, this is kind of cool,
2: and you have some really like you have notable faces in this episode as well. I mean, you have Julie Adams in this episode who one of the you know one of the more notable universal monster female actresses, which again it, it kind of works in this episode's favor because not only do you have her in this episode, but she's kind of given a lot to do, and that's really good as well. And she does a good job kind of portraying this drunken widower, which you wonder why her husband ever married her in the first place, because she doesn't seem like the kind of woman that he would marry.
1: Well, I'm not saying she's a gold digger.
2: Right, but... <laughs> but. She might be. <laughs> I do like at the end of the episode where she's like, I'm moving now. Goodbye. <laughs> it's like, I'm getting out of here. It's like, yeah. Do I don't not bother you.
1: to come back and interview me a third
2: time. Yeah. But again, I mean, everything about this episode, I mean, it kind of stands up and holds up to the praise that I've seen about it. And that's really good because, you know, with the last episodes of the 2006 show being so kind of draining – for me and you in regards to the quality of the episode. It's nice to kind of get back to a quality episode from the original show. So I had to do a little research
1: today, and I reached out to John Huff just to confirm something with him, because I am a huge fan of Philip K. Dick, and I've read Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep many times, but I couldn't remember – if the Tyrell corporation is inside of that book, or if that was wholly a blade runner construct. And I went back, I talked to him and I, uh, you know, downloaded the PDF of, uh, electric sheep, and I did a search in there. I could not come up with the word Tyrell. Huff also said, no, he didn't pull that from a Droid's Dream. He doesn't even remember coming up with Tyrell inside of that. But if you notice, yeah, Tyrell is the corporation who is basically there making Mr. Ring. And then we have Tyrell Corporation in Blade Runner, who is also making more human than human, that's what I always say, making these robots in Blade Runner. So I think that that was a lift from, who who wrote the original Blade Runner? David Peoples, and I can't remember who the other person was. I think that was a lift from this episode. That's my theory, anyway.
2: I mean, it's not a coincidence that they're both about robots, right?
1: Right, and they're both spelled the exact same way, and they're both these companies making these robots, so...
2: If it's a coincidence, it's a mighty eerie coincidence. Yeah. And it's only, I mean,
1: Blade Runner is, what, five years north of this episode, probably written four or even three years north of this episode.
2: I noticed that, and I was wondering if you were going to say anything about it, because I was going to if you didn't. But its it was one of those things where when I heard it, I was like, can't be a coincidence. Okay, I'm glad it wasn't just me. But, I mean, again, if it had been an episode about, oh flying vampire bat monster men, then maybe I'd be like, well, that doesn't really matter. But an episode about a sentient robot, a <laughs> different story completely.
1: So, And we didn't talk about the director of this one. This one was directed by Gene Levitt, and surprisingly, this was his only Kolchak. He actually was much more of a writer than a director. He only directed... Um, I, IMDb says 18 things. Who knows what to, to believe or not believe about that. He directed a lot of episodic television, like Night Gallery, those kind of things. Um, McLeod. He was much more of a notable writer and wrote just a ton of stuff. And he was credited for just a bunch of Fantasy Island, uh, episodes. He actually created Fantasy Island. So yeah, he, had uh, tons of writing credits. So I wonder, too, if he helped preserve
2: the, the good writing on this episode as being a writer-director. I would assume so. I would assume he kind of looked at some of the scenes and kind of helped tweak the writing. I I wouldn't be surprised, would you? No, I would not. And Fantasy Island is such a good show. I mean, you know. Somebody should do a podcast on that. Ricardo Maltaban
1: is pretty great. I can't tell you how many times that show scared me as a kid because there were some weird supernatural episodes of that where it would just kind of freak me out because most of the time it was like you know guy wants to win everything at poker or woman wants to have a muscle man for a boyfriend or weird shit like that and then you would get like mr Rourke fighting the devil and it'd be like what the hell what did i just turn on this week
2: Fantasy Island was pretty nuts. I like Fantasy Island a lot, though. And I, I honestly always forget that there are seven seasons of that show. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it sounds like you did as well. So, yeah, that show was on for a long time. compared, Especially compared to Kolchak, which is only on for one season. But, you know, the other thing about this episode is that it really does kind of show you how and where the direction of some of the shows that came out. After this show we're going, namely the X-Files, in regards to the, you know, mischievous government meddling in everything and covering up everything. And that's one of, again, that ends up being the big driving force at the end of this episode. But that's obviously such a huge part of the X-Files that it was kind of like, a, you know, it's kind of like, oh, they're kind of the early seeds of that in a show like Kolchak. Yeah, the first time I
1: rewatched this episode... Uh, the other day, I was like, this scene with Senator Stevens doesn't seem to fit as well as the other scenes. But then when I rewatched it again yesterday, it was like, okay, this is really tying into the whole idea of like government spending and these things that I think Kolchak is using that mostly as an excuse, but I think he is actually kind of sincere about it as well. But for him, and this might just be me projecting for him, you know, it's the thrill of the chase and and any sort of cover up is something that he wants to get to the bottom of. He's just kind of using the whole like government spending thing as kind of like, uh, this is my over overlying driving force, but really I just want to get to the bottom of this. So there are times where I'm like, does the Senator actually even know what's going on? Is he just, you know, is this all part of like a pork barrel thing or is he actually in on this and just playing dumb?
2: I got the sense that he was in on it, or at least knew about it. Very similar to the character at the beginning of season two of the X-Files, where he's kind of like being nudged along by, you know, someone in the government who wants to expose something. And the, the character in this episode, I don't think wanted to expose anything, but he knew more than he was letting on for sure.
1: I guess it kind of reminded me of that unfilmed script for Kolchak, that third movie where it was all the, um, the replacements, I guess those were, those were androids as well, weren't they?
2: Yeah, they were.
1: Okay. And that's where it did more of what you were talking about, as far as these people actually look like people. And then you realize, no, they're, you know, when they die, they get, you know, Give people electric shocks or whatever when the the, the people that were like giving open heart surgery and the guy just gets electrocuted because there's a machine inside of him instead of a you know a heart.
2: I can't imagine though that it's a coincidence that Henry Beckman ends up playing a part of a detective in the X Files because he's in the first season of the show as the detective who's in two episodes, and then he ends up being in a third episode, but he returns as the same character in Squeeze and Tombs as kind of the grizzled detective who is trying to figure out how Tombs was getting away with all the murders. Another connection to the X-Files. Oh, man, I did not pick up on that at all. That's great. Everything comes back to
1: Kolchak eventually, is what it seems like. He has such a great face. Just right, the, he does. Yeah, real character actor face. So, Chris, what is happening over at the Culture Cast these days?
2: Uh, so right now we are in the middle of Horrortober for The Awakening, where we are talking only about found footage horror movies, and we're not talking about Paranormal Activity or Blair Witch Project. Sorry, we're sidestepping the overanalyzed, overplayed, and frankly lesser quality horror films of the genre. We're going to be talking about some uh, some stuff you've probably never heard of: Ghost Watch, WNUF Halloween Special, some really kind of interesting under the radar stuff that I I think is pretty pretty cool, pretty pretty exciting stuff. So that's what we're doing over at the CultureCast. What are you doing over at the Projection Booth, Mr. White? Well, what is your Halloween month called? Horror-tober
1: 4, The Awakening. Horror- wow, that's pretty amazing. We're just doing Shocktober, so nothing as as nearly as creative as yours.
2: I think we- I think The Awakening is- what is that? The Omen 4? I think you're right. Yeah, I think that's what we ripped off the byline from this time. I always rip a byline off of a horror, uh, like, sequel. I think last year- what the hell was last year? I don't remember what last year was, but this year is The Awakening.
1: Well, we are also doing halloween theme stuff, though much more grab-bag, let's say. I don't want to say eclectic because that might sound like I'm trying to outdo you, because I'm not, because mine is just all over the place. We're doing episodes on Suspiria, Fiend Without a Face, Begotten, the Mr. Vampire series, and Session 9. Like I said, all over the map. I can't wait to watch, again, the entire Mr. Vampire series, because that shit is amazing.
2: Yeah, you're, uh, how about this? You're doing a little bit more avant-garde stuff in some respects. I'm kind of, uh, going a little bit more, uh, found footage horror kind of gets a bad rap, and I think that's because of films like Paranormal Activity that overstayed their welcome by, like, eight films, or whatever absolutely ridiculous number they have. So, you're kind of talking about stuff that's just kind of Better off the bat, I'm trying to make a case that found footage horror movies are actually not total garbage. Good luck with that. Yeah, Well, we'll see in November how that goes over.
1: <laughs> there are some that I actually like. I, I mean, I really like playing with the documentary style. So something like uh, Sandman, like a lot. Well, the Last have Broadcast.
2: Seen, have you seen the la- behind the behind the mask? Uh that's a that good one,
1: Leslie Vernon. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, I don't think I have.
2: That, it almost made our list. Uh, it's, it's a documentary, so it's not found footage, per se, so it, kinda, it kind of uh, disqualified itself. It got close, but it kind of disqualified itself, unfortunately.
1: For whatever reason, I always got Behind the Mask and the Hatchet films mixed up in my mind. I don't know if they had a similar poster or something,
2: Uh, I mean, they're both indie horror movies. So one is directed by everyone's hater, favorite hater of piracy, Adam Green. Uh, So Adam, we did an interview with Adam Green, oh, a couple years ago. And he talked to me for like two hours and one hour was just him railing against piracy of his films.
1: I think Adam Green showed up in Survival of the Film Freaks, which is a movie that I produced, and that is out on the festival circuit these days. Toot, 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 your own horn! Yeah, well, you know, somebody's got (laughs) to it. Someone's got to, yeah, right. Yeah. Where can people go to listen to all of your fine podcast work, sir?
2: Well, for my podcast, they can go over to CultureCast.com. Uh, not only can they go to culturecast.com, they can also go to chroniclesfromthecrypt.com to listen to a podcast I do with my good friend Mike Wallace, where we talk about two episodes of Tales from the Crypt twice a month. That's a fun podcast. I think also we do a podcast, the three of us, Mike? Is that true? Is you that think a thing? so? You think that is? I've heard
1: rumors Yeah, I think we might. We might also do, on top of the Kolchak Tapes, which you can find out more about at kolchaktapes.com, you can also listen to us talk about old episodes of the 1985 Twilight Zone, which you can listen to over at twilightzone85.com. So every month we are getting together and talking about episodes of Twilight Zone 1985, which actually... Ended up going till 1989, so the middle of the 80s version of Twilight Zone is what we were
2: discussing.
1: And it's a really good show. I concur. Even if I wasn't on it, I might actually like it.
2: Well, I'm on it, so you probably wouldn't. So So there you go.
1: So I want to thank John Walker for our theme music, as always, and I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank folks who have been going over to iTunes and just leaving tons and tons of positive five-star reviews. It is just wonderful. Where are you guys?
2: Same people that like me as your co-host.
1: Oh, wow. Zing! So we are back next month with a new episode of the Colchak Taste. We are still going strong. We're only about halfway through this stuff, people. We just did episode twelve of the original Night Stalker. So we've got eight more to go, plus talking about things that didn't get shot that ended up being in other forms. I've got I've got a Colchak comic book sitting right here. You can hear it slapping against the,
2: my face.
1: Dude, that was my skull!
2: Oh, Jesus Christ.
1: So we're going to be talking about Colchak comic books and talking about Night Stalker 2005, the last few episodes of that, thank God. And yeah, so next month, though, we are back with an episode called
2: Primal Scream. Featuring everyone's favorite horse murdered mobster, John Marley. Can't wait! Looking forward to it.
1: So until then, head on over to coldchecktapes.com. Listen to the back episodes. We've got some great ones out there. Like I said, please go on over to iTunes and leave us a review or any place that you get this podcast. We'll be glad that you did.
0: I don't even know where they took me now. At least I can't be sure. Maybe it was Terrell Institute, but it could just as well have been the Black Hills, South Dakota, for all I know. Was there a drug? Pentothol, scopolamine. I can't be sure of that either, though there must have been something. I can't even be sure the events ever happened the way I've told them. Perhaps when I'm completely back in this world, I'll turn on this tape and not believe any of it myself, but I doubt it. Because I believe that somewhere, someplace, they or someone else Will put some other ring together without the help of Leslie Dwyer And who Who will program him then?